0: And you know the the nice thing about World War II, and one of the reasons I'm able to build the collection we have, is because everything goes up in value.
1: Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the reenactors corner podcast. This is Chris here again. Uh, we don't have Ben here today. He will be back with us on the next episode. Before we get started, I wanted to say thank you to everyone who supports us via Patreon and an extra special thanks to our newest Patreon supporter, Devin. Thank you very much for your support. Um And on kind of a somber note, I did want to express my condolences to the family and friends of uh, reenactor Ken Boynton. He was a... A listener of the podcast and was someone who I corresponded with online. I never met him. He was a World War II reenactor. I always thought he was a guy that I could have reenacted with. We both shared interest in paperwork stuff. So um, unfortunately, he passed away at a young age recently. And I just wanted to take a moment to kind of remember him on the podcast and also to express my deepest sympathies to all of his family and friends and everybody that he reenacted with. So uh, having said that, let's get on with the episode. I am excited today to introduce a special guest, Tom O'Brien. Tom, thanks for coming on the podcast.
0: No problem. Thanks for having me.
1: So to get started, why don't we talk about uh, how you got interested in World War II and how you got started
0: in reenacting? You know, it's, it's a, I've been reenacting for 28 years. And it probably, um, the spark that kind of got my attention was probably when I was around the age of 13 or 14, there was a video game called secret weapons of the Luftwaffe, and you could fly the, uh, the flying wing, the Horton 229 or you know, the ME 262, and that got my attention in German advanced technology during the war. And as I researched more, I got into the ground troops, and I realized that they had infrared night vision, uh, assault rifles, and things like that, and my interest just kind of exploded. And um, it's just when the internet was kind of coming up as a resource for reenacting, and there was a local reenacting group about a half an hour from my house, and I signed up to, to reenact as quickly as I could. And so that was, geez, a long time ago. <laughs>
1: That's really interesting. So what kind of reenactment group was it that you got started with?
0: Well, it was it was 2nd Panzer, the 38th pioneer, uh, pioneer Battalion. And so basically, Pioneer reenacting, we focused on explosives, detonation equipment, and things like that.
1: So that was back in the
0: 90s then? Absolutely. Uh, around 94, 95-ish.
1: That's really kind of early on. Um, what was reenacting like in the mid-90s?
0: Well, this. Swedish tunics or Yanka. New Columbia, I think had already gone out of business, and either got a Yanka or a Swedish converted tunic. And so, and camouflage was just starting to come out. So it was really popular, 1944 Militaria. I'm not sure if they were reselling uh, SMW or, or not, but I got a tan and water parka. And so my first event, I had my tan and water parka, my tunic, a pair of Swedish pants. I believe I had like 1930s worker boots. And I had an original helmet with, like, a Norwegian liner or something. And, in fact, I didn't have the split pins, and my helmet fell apart at my first event. But I I was in, so I was happy. Um, Ammo pouches, in fact, uh, a lot of the equipment was readily available as surplus still. And so I bought my ammo pouches, my belt buckle, my – I don't think they were all original, but most of the equipment at the first event I attended.
1: How many people were going to events at that time, like – what kind of events were you doing and what was the turnout like
0: you know it seems similar it was it was higher Uh, I reenacted more back then just because I was young and didn't have the responsibilities I did today but we would get events with several hundred people there was the Camden event in Ohio was going on it was was pretty popular my first event was a public event and military um, military show that was in Medina Ohio Trying to think of some of the popular ones. D-Day was started around that time, back then. And um, I remember traveling to events in Indiana, but it was, its my memory's a little foggy.
1: You must have had an opportunity to meet and talk to a lot of World War II veterans going to events in that era, I've got to think.
0: Uh, I did. Um, <clears throat> there was there was a gentleman who, who, I don't remember his name, but he was an original, he was a dispatch writer for the Wehrmachter, for the Hare during the war, he bought an R75, the BMW R75, and he would drive around events. In fact, he dress, he'd put on the full uniform, and I think him and his friend, who was, I don't think was a veteran, they would just show up. They wouldn't really participate, but they would just be driving around the event the entire time. Uh, I never made it. One thing that I never did and I wish I would have is I never made it to Gap. And I know that um, I would say if I had one, one regret in reenacting, is I never made it to Gap. So I didn't do a lot of barracks events. Most of my events were in the field. And there was a little bit less time to interact with veterans there.
1: Sure. How do you think that reenactment has kind of changed over time from the 90s to now? Do you think it's gotten more realistic or uh, kind of what's your take sort of looking back on how this has all evolved?
0: You know, I think there's a lot more access to knowledge. Um, Reenactor lore, if I look back at some of the things I was told some things were even silly were, were considered common knowledge back then and you couldn't the amount of information online is, is so tremendous these days that you can back up just about any argument with something if if you've spent some time doing research and, and that didn't exist back then so we had to use books and a lot of people didn't want to take the time to buy those and i just found that a lot of reenactor lore just totally incorrect re- reenactor lore was accepted so um Definitely, you know, you had the baby boomer generation back then participating. They were a little bit younger. And so you had a lot more of the expensive toys, kind of the eye candy coming out on a regular basis and or or original vehicles and things like that were more common. You see a lot less of that nowadays as the the hobby's kind of going through to a new generation. Um Definitely didn't have the influence of social media. So events are where you did talk. We had uh, Yahoo groups. I think was the extent of uh, most of our online communication with the rest of the hobby, which which was good for what it was, but it it wasn't what social media is today. I kind of miss the Yahoo groups.
1: You know, we we gain something from the instant communication and availability to show photos. Um, you know, versus the old email list formats, but I think we kind of lose something a little bit too. I remember a lot of information being shared in those, those old email lists and stuff. And I I kind of missed the tone of some of those discussions.
0: Oh, there was a lot of great information there. In fact, I think you posted about them taking down the Yahoo group or stopping support for the Yahoo groups. And I went, and I probably spent two hours trying to figure out how to download it because they had a service where they said, uh, if, if you wanted, for I think it was for free, and you did it within two weeks, you could download everything from a certain group. And I couldn't get it to work for the life of me. And the, the Vermont Reenactor group um, had a lot of information, and I can't remember specifically what I was trying to access, but I do remember debates happening on that group, and actually kind of coming of age as a reenactor on that group at on, on some level. And I was I was disappointed I wasn't able to, to save that information.
1: Well, the good news is, is that I still have that entire Yahoo group and I can uh, can certainly send it to you. We should talk for sure. Yeah. Uh, Now, of course, for people who don't know, uh, you haven't exactly been like reenacting just as a regular rifleman for all of this time, right? You've kind of expanded into some specialist roles and sort of picked up some big toys of your own. Sure. Sure.
0: You know, um, kind of, it's you know, as I've developed through the hobby, I've kind of developed these hobbies within a hobby, you know, different parts of German reenacting that I really enjoy. And it kind of depends what's happening locally, what piece that, you know, I have the opportunity to buy something. Uh, but I've owned, uh, you know, owned or owned several, you know, anti-tank pieces or, or artillery pieces, some vehicles. Um, I would say that I focus most, of course, on on I think, because I started there, but also I've got into Panzerjäger. I've done Uh, field artillery and artillery impression Uh, I've been into field communications um, had the opportunity to to do some fun adventures there and then also just infantry Uh, and it all just depends on who I'm reenacting with what the support is of the area and what opportunity I have to to acquire items and, and bring them into our collection
1: that's cool you you have or have owned some vehicles too if if I'm not mistaken on that
0: Yes. So right now we've got three motorcycles. We have two trucks. We have a Ford three ton and then a KFC 72 divisional radio truck. Um, And, and then we've had, I've owned uh, a pack, a five centimeter pack 38 I've sold. I have, yes, uh, excuse me, vehicles. And then I think I've had two other motorcycles and I had a VW uh, command car too at one point.
1: That's incredible. Uh, you know, a five-centimeter pack thirty-eight isn't something that you can, uh, you know, go to Walmart and buy. Uh, I, I don't know to buy and, and sell reenactment toys at that level. I think it's a, it must be a incredible investment, not only in money but just in time, uh, space. You know, that's that's a real that's a level of reenacting that I think few reenactors will ever really attain.
0: Well, I, I appreciate that. I, I think that. I have the ability to fabricate I, I work in the welding industry um, and my the other side of my life and so the pac 38 actually was missing the barrel and I just bought a kind of a rebuilt chassis and the armor was reproduction it actually had been strafed and there were still probably 50 caliber uh, indents all over the chassis and then I knew I, I just through my connection to the industry, I was able to have someone build a barrel for it. Uh, fortunately, it was destroyed in a fire and then it was sold on to someone who could rebuild it. But um, I've been lucky, and especially through reenacting, is to find vehicles. I, I enjoy taking vehicles that either they need restoration or perhaps they're period made, but not for the German military. Like the U.S., the, the vehicles that were similar that were manufactured in the U.S. Uh, that were also manufactured or showed up in the German Wehrmacht. I enjoy converting those or taking them from something that wouldn't exactly appear World War II German um, and then making it something that's very military and 100% correct. And it gives you more options.
1: Sure. No, that's really cool. And I, I'm sure that having uh, contacts, you know, knowing how to fabricate stuff, having contacts that have metalworking skills or even like on an industrial scale are able to create or source metal components, that must be... A, a huge benefit in this, absolutely.
0: Oh, there's there's one piece I, I forgot to tell you about that. Uh, if I ever have the chance to to buy it back, is that I had a, a six wheeled Krupp replica that I built a, a, a believable Flak 30 to go on the background, and it was this beautiful, beautiful 1941 Russian invasion piece. And unfortunately, the my, my life um, there was a divorce involved, and and just the splitting of of wealth of property. And unfortunately that was one thing that that had to move on. And then the the new owner, I, b- I believe they're in first SS, I'm not sure. They took the flat gun off and they were gonna put it on a half track and then they used the the truck at events to move people around. So it kind of they're still cool pieces on their own, but I, I loved it together.
1: That's really cool. I, If I remember right, you were at, see, I wasn't at the first uh, Stalingrad event, but I think that you went and were doing an artillery impression with like a, a field gun. Is is that right?
0: Yeah, that was a really cool experience. So we have a, um, a 1936 divisional field howitzer F-22, basically a 76.2 centimeter gun, which we believe was captured by the Germans during the war and then sold to Finland. Finland kept their world war II artillery pieces up till about the mid nineties. And then they've wholesaled them in in the United States and Canada. And so a gentleman in Finley, Ohio, which is by Toledo, um, about a two hour drive from my house, he imported the gun from Canada and he put it up for sale on gun broker and, and we were able to acquire it. And, um, with some help from, from some good people, we were able to make it from, from the unit, we were able to make it fire convincingly in a, in a blank system. And so we took it to Stalingrad where it was very appropriate. And, uh, it was reviewed well because when we would fire it, the whole building would shake and the, and the German soldiers said that the, uh, the, uh, the ceiling would, would actually collapse in a little bit or, or flake off and fall on them. And it was a moment of realism. So it was, it was really enjoyable. And then also Russian national TV, uh, channel number one, which is the second highest-rated channel in Russia, they were there doing interviews and and researching how reenacting is done to portray the Soviet Union in the United States. So it was actually interviewed by by Russian national TV.
1: That's really cool. Yeah, I, I remember hearing about that artillery piece from other people who at the who were at the event, and everybody said that it was like, a, you know, it was incredible every time it went off. It was it was a lot of fun to shoot. <laughs> you know, we don't usually think about. Being able to have that kind of support impression at reenactments, usually battles, it's just kind of infantry against infantry. So to have a real artillery piece that is having some role, I mean, how did you, this is kind of just out of curiosity, but did you have some way where you could sort of use the artillery piece to like affect the you know, the reenactment
0: battle that was going on? We didn't have any system beyond what a normal reenactment would, would offer. Basically, if you see the cannon and it's pointed at you and when it fires, you're probably dead. But we, it was a little bit of confusion because the film crew was filming us around the same time as the battle. And it's, we, because we were back, we couldn't really see. I think the fighting didn't actually reach the cannon until the end. So we were almost firing just for fun and support. Because it wasn't an area of of significant combat at the time. In fact, some people complained because we weren't, they said they were firing at us and we we weren't taking cover, but we didn't even notice.
1: I can definitely relate to that, like firing for fun thing. Uh, You know, in my time reenacting, I did have some times that I got to be part of a crew of one or another anti tank cannon and sometimes we were able to use those things in a really effective way where we were able to engage with enemy armor or whatever. And then other times it's just kind of this giant gun going off and sort of being there as set dressing and the booming sound adds some uh, sort of atmosphere to the event, but doesn't actually sort of affect the outcome of the battle. You know,
0: Well, the the compression is is totally there. I mean, if you're within maybe even a hundred feet, you're going to feel the compression. In fact, I would love to be buying artillery. uh, uh, In World War II, I would love one of the areas I'd I'd want to most be is surrounded by an artillery battery because just the feeling of the compression and the sound has got to be phenomenal. I mean, it might actually damage my hearing, but (laughs) the the feeling on my body would just be tremendous.
1: Sure. So you've got all of this stuff, uh, and that kind of brings us to... Uh, where you store all of those things um, you know how did all of this you know for for people who don't know you've got basically a, a private slash public almost museum sort of uh, you know what's what's the story walk us through how how that came about and and what you're doing with that
0: sure well we wanted a place to store our collection and you know, it, it, I'll mention to um, some, some of the listeners may be familiar with Hannah's Militaria. It's owned by Hannah Spooks. That's my wife. So she's, the you know, a 50-50 owner and, and everything we have. And we we wanted to, to put our collection in one place. And we never really had, even b- before I, I got married, I, I never was someone that was, I would consider wealthy. I, I, would, I had the money to invest in these things, but, uh, you know, I would buy to sell and just kind of. Continually upgraded my collection by buying and selling. And so, you know, I think a lot of reenactors go through this You get something that's really cool, but you don't really have a place to store it So or the, a permanent place to store it. So if our collection was spread out across northern, Ohio um, the nicer pieces we had at, at a museum called the Liberty Museum. We had our the cannon and the uh, KFC 72 radio truck We had our three-ton truck at our house. We had some motorcycles um, in our garage at one point. We even had a reproduction tent crowd at one point. And then in our friend's house would be the other Cannon. Um, And then just kind of moving things around between North Northeastern Ohio, depending on who liked us at the time and would let us get away with putting a bunch of World War II stuff on their property. And while that's very low cost and usually people don't mind sharing, you don't have access to your stuff you know there's some uh, risks involved you know people may move things and damage it and so we, we decided we really needed to have this in one place so we started looking around northeast ohio where we could find a, a location to put everything in and we found a building in Conneaut, uh, which is kind of an economically depressed town kind of an old steel mill uh, port for, for importing ore and found a great price on a building that, that kind of looked like a world War two bunker and we went ahead and bought it and moved every, and moved everything there
1: and you've you've done a lot of work on that building too to kind of make it you know make parts of it really look more like a world War two bunker um, I'll have to I'll put some pictures of it up on the Instagram for people if they haven't seen it it's uh, camouflage painted on the outside is it is it a concrete building it looks really impressive it looks really cool it is it,
0: it's It's cinder block, it is, it's, that's a good question. It's concrete, yes, it's a concrete building in the front. So the front was built in 1949. And then it has been expanded back since then, just over the years to, I think it was originally built as a cigar making factory. And then it turned in at some point to like an auto dealership. All these old timers kind of come by and stop in when they see we're open and they tell us these stories. Used to be slot car racing back there. It was used by a racing team for storage. And then there was like auto glass replacement. So kind of just a hodgepodge of various businesses over the years before it.
1: And you've, you've called it the, uh, the museum of the Atlantic wall, right? That's correct. The world war II museum. And how was it that you came up, like, how did you come up with the idea of calling it the world war II museum of the Atlantic wall instead of um, just, you know, I don't know, a generic, a more generic term.
0: Sure. Sure. Well, we're, first of all, it's primarily a World War II German museum, and um, although we're open to having allies involved and doing future displays uh, and having allied articles added to our collection, uh, but the reason is that's kind of our specialty. So we've reenacted German. That's the, our collection is probably 80, 70 percent German, 30 to 20 percent Soviet, and so it just made sense we were going to go German and. and so we wanted people to understand that it was World War II. So we figured there would be tourists coming in. Conneaut's kind of a tourist town. There's other events in, in, the, in the area. So we wanted people to right away realize that it was World War II connected, but we wanted it to be something a little bit more. And luckily, that building looks pretty much like a German bunker from the Atlantic Wall. Um, you can kind of split hairs on it. It's, it's not perfect, but for walking into a building that was low cost where we could put everything, we, we kind of found a gold mine. And so we said, why don't we just make it about the Atlantic Wall and focus on something specific? And, you know, it doesn't necessarily limit us to the German impression. So we can talk about how the Allies, you know, overcame the Atlantic Wall, scaled it and crossed it, et cetera, and defeated it. So it was trying to to take World War II as a general topic, which we figured people would know. And then the Atlantic Wall, which we figured a lot of people wouldn't know about, but then allow us to educate people or have a specific topic to address as people came in.
1: I think that's a great idea. What's kind of your overall vision for the museum? Like, what are you thinking as far as uh, when the museum will be open and um, what kind of programs and stuff you might want to be putting on there?
0: Sure. So initially, uh, we've had a lot of interest. We, We haven't organized the people who are willing to volunteer yet, but we've just only been open for the end of last summer. But we're going to be open. Our goal is probably two weekends through the, the summer uh, rush. So it, it kind of it is kind of a vacation area. So, you know, Memorial Day to Labor Day type schedule. And every weekend we can be there. And hopefully that's at least two weekends a month and then open up for private parties. In fact, we just got a request today for 50 people that are part of an organization that want to come through. So we'll have that aspect. but <clears throat> We also kind of want to make we, we have a lot of room. You know, we're hoping to make it kind of a center for the hobby. So if someone wants to park a vehicle there or come work on a vehicle, uh, they'd be welcome free of charge if they reenact to, to come be involved. And, you know, we, we could kind of have a couple of helping hands on the vehicle. Um, if people want to store stuff, you know, maybe because they don't have room at home and it's not that much, you know, um, you know it's not ridiculously huge, we'd be happy to store that for them for free. And then we also want to do, um, you know, because we have access in our collection to some unique items, we want to do training and give reenactors the ability to kind of play with things that they might not at a normal event and kind of uh, give them the ability to reenact the experience of using this equipment and what it would really like be like. So uh, we're looking at signals and communications, and then we're also looking at indirect fire and artillery. So we have, uh, for example, with artillery, we want to do firing, of course, but often forgotten is the forward observer and then how the forward observer connects between there and the artillery that might be i don't know a kilometer or two behind the lines or even further actually so you know how did they calculate um the exact location of each item to where the enemy was how did they figure out how did they set the cannon how did they set the optics how did they set the rangefinder and you know do activities like that where it's something that was an everyday part of war but reenacting doesn't get to see it very often
1: that's really cool. You've got like lodging in the bunker, right? Like part of the museum is actually sort of a recreated living area where reenactors could kind of live for the weekend doing this kind of thing?
0: Yeah, correct. We've got a bunker section and it looks pretty much, it's pretty close. The beds, if, if you want to be a stickler, the beds are about three inches or two inches wider than they originally were. But we put a, in a small square room, we line the outside with bunk beds. And then we actually have a second section that, that can be used for women because during the war, uh, the Nachtjäger and would be stationed in an area to help the men, but they'd be completely separated. So we technically have a separate bunk for women, although we can use that for men if, if we have an activity and there's overflow.
1: That's excellent. So I know you guys have an event planned there coming up. Um, you know, why don't you tell us a little bit about the uh, the communications? training session and, and when it is and what you've got planned for it.
0: Sure. Well, so, um, you know, one of the areas we've of course focused is in signals and communications. Uh, we have most, if not all the equipment to outfit, what would be kind of a battalion, uh, company command, or excuse me, a command company of a battalion. And so it it seems to me, Chris, and I'll ask you, does it, How do you feel communications is reenacted in the hobby? If you don't mind, do you think it's successful? Because it seems to me like it's something that everybody knows about. It's not uncommon to have reenactors with phones and switchboards. But from my limited view, it seems that it's pretty rare to have a successful communication setup that that is able to support a full functioning event. Do you agree with that? Or do you think it's something different?
1: Well I I do agree generally speaking of course it's it's kind of different for every individual event there are a lot of events that I participate in that are are su- attended by such small numbers of people that really just having runners handle kind of communication between one squad and the next it might be the most authentic way and it you know other times though just thinking back on my own time as a reenactor, you mentioned the events at Fort Indian Town Gap. I, I remember we had like a in the building that I was kind of doing my thing in. We had a whole communication staff with switchboards and phones, and they had um, wires set up. But for the most part, those people weren't really able to actually use that stuff because. Other reenactors didn't really understand what the communications network could be used for. or They didn't know how to operate even like the field phone. And so a lot of that infrastructure was set up, but then just wound up not being used. Um, And then, of course, other times you've got events where they set up a communications network, but it's just uh, like modern radios or even cell phones. And there's not even an attempt really made to do it in a period correct way. So I think, it, you know, at best, it's kind of been uh, hit and miss over over time.
0: Yeah, so, so, and that's exactly what I've experienced. And so what our goal is in this training class is we're going to invite, It's it's really geared towards people who already do signals and have an interest or who are unit commanders or event leadership. And we're gonna set up for, let uh, let's just say a, a, a German unit of a, a company of a, roughly 150 people an on authentic communications network invo- involving not only line equipment, phones and switchboards and things, but also radio equipment. And we're gonna combine it together. And, and what we're kind of hoping is is we're gonna go through each phase and everybody's gonna work with different portions, setting it up and taking it down. And we can work, go through all the electrical problems that can happen and why equipment fails and why original and modern and what it actually takes to do that. So that when everybody leaves, they know more or less what it takes to be successful at a smaller event or a big event, setting up this equipment. And also what, it, what they need to have, what, what expectations there are before they get there. Um, you know, interestingly, I see a lot of reenactors, they invest in phones and switchboards, but I kind of notice they don't invest in wire. And unfortunately, you can have as many phones and switchboards as you want. But if you don't have a really good supply of wire, you're just as limited as if you didn't have phones. So things like that.
1: Well, you've got, I know, a lot of um, signal stuff, you know, that that must have been, obviously you have been collecting this stuff for a long time. And your wife being sort of in the military a dealer role she's got her own contacts to obtain stuff what it what is it like for someone who's trying to put together um, a set of things that could be used for uh, like a communications network at, at reenactment is stuff
0: available uh, you know what's what's the story there well there's really two levels and um, there's the beginning level so Readily available, you can get post-war wire. You can get the Rukentraga uh, or the kind of the spooler backpack with that can reel up wire. Those are available post-war. The, they look nearly identical. They're on German eBay. And you can get field phones fairly easy. Um, and I would say if anyone has a has not begun searching for these things, they are welcome to contact me on Facebook or, or through you, however they want to do it. And that can be obtained fairly easily. There's the kind of the next level where it's very difficult. Um, a lot of the things we've had to manufacture ourselves. We have contacts in Germany, uh, for example. There's there's three types of of German field cable that was used. There was the light field cable, heavy field cable, and then what they call uh, feldfront cable, which was like out of the field cable, which was very heavy. Um, 99.9% of reenacting is done with heavy field cable, which isn't always right, but it's available. So if you want to get into the light field cable, uh, the, your chances of finding, you're limited to ground dog originals or getting very, very lucky out of Europe. The, there's just no supply.
1: Interesting. What about the field phones? You mentioned that they're available. Um, you know, if if someone is out there looking to get a field telephone for use in reenacting, you know, kind of what, what might they expect to pay nowadays? And, you know, are there ways to, to tell if the phone is going to work? I know they don't always really work.
0: Sure. So the, the nice thing about the phones is they're generally all repairable with with minimal effort once you understand what's going on. If you don't understand them, they're just like any other electronic device that you've never touched before. But, you know, phones go from anywhere, um, probably – and this is without a strap or without the the special patching cable inside, but otherwise complete probably from about $125 to $200 would be market average for just a run of the mill phone. And one of the things you can do is that um, they do come where they have a test feature. Um, My wife Hannah Fuchs has put a video on YouTube on how to test them, but you can jump the two uh, terminals in the middle press the white test button and turn the crank to ring it and that should ring the phone, which will let you know that the ringer and the the bell system is working. And then if you hear feedback when you do that, you pull up the receiver, uh, you'll know that that part of the receiver, the handset, is working. Um, That's probably 75% of the things that can go wrong on the phone that you can do without ever putting a battery to it. But again, they are very reliable. And I've never had a phone that I couldn't repair. So they're very robust.
1: That's really cool. What about the, um, I guess, the microphone and the speaker elements in the handset? Is that uh, something where um, you might have to source replacement parts or can those parts be repaired if they've gone bad?
0: Sure. So it, it's usually the, the microphone portion. <coughs> That's the, the carbon is going to go bad in there. So either you can it, you shake it because it kind of pumps together over time. Uh, in a worst case, if you can't fix that, um, I have found a. It's I think from a can. I get them out of Canada. It's from. I bought a. I bought a box of elements that was probably full of 500 antique phone uh, capsule slash elements for the the microphone and the speaker part of the handset. And I just went through them until I found one that fit. And then I found it in Canada. And I'd have to go to the link. But again, if anyone um, uh, can, can contact me or Hannah's Militaria, we'll, we're happy to find them. Uh, they're like $3 a piece.
1: Wow, that's cool. I didn't know that.
0: That's excellent. Um, if, if you don't mind, Chris, I would like to say something about the impression. I think, I think that there's a tremendous opportunity. If, if someone's getting into the hobby and they want to have an impact at events, there's not a lot of signals reenactors. And in my opinion, well, you know, when people do signals, what I see is that they, they have a main impression. So let's just say they're with the Pioneer unit. And some guy says, well, I, I want to get into field phones too. So he goes out and he buys a couple field phones and maybe he buys some wire. And unless he's coordinating with the rest of, one of the things that's difficult about the impression is you have to share and work with other people. So if you have two or three phones, that means that, two of your phones, you're not gonna be by them during the event. They're gonna be kind of on the other side of the field, probably as far away as they can be being used by someone else. Or you have to be able to coordinate, meet up with everyone who has field phones already so that's their phones over by where they are. And I think that's that's kind of a challenge. So I've been thinking, you know, for about the cost of a G43, you know, figuring $3,000 or something, You know, someone could go out and buy a switchboard. They could get four or five phones. This stuff is all readily available, although it does cost money. And you can get the wire. You know, you could walk into an event. If you got good and you made sure that this was operating all the time and and you were able to lay down the wire quickly and and retrieve it, I think you could have a bigger – you could have an impact at a reenactment, you know, just starting out. And I think it would be a great impression if people were to to start forming signals units rather than just kind of being – signals off to the side, if you will. Sure, I agree.
1: I I think that's a really cool perspective. Um, You know, $3,000 sounds like a lot of money, and of course it is a lot of money, but in terms of reenacting and how much you can spend getting into an impression, that's not really more expensive, frankly, at this point, than even like a standard rifleman uh, loadout, I think, you know, for the most part.
0: Sure, sure. And, you know, the, the nice thing about World War II, and one of the reasons I've been able to build the collection we have, is because everything goes up in value. You know, there's a lot of hobbies where, like racing, the people that the money you have to blow to get good at racing and probably never make any money at it is tremendous. Uh, where in reenacting, I've been able to buy and sell and upgrade and kind of as my interests have changed, I've always been able to sell things to purchase items in the new interest. So,
1: That's a great point. That applies to almost all reenactment stuff, even reproduction items they don't go to zero when you buy them, you know, you have to spend money on this stuff, but the items do retain value. And in many cases uh, they do go up in value, you know, what about the event that you've got coming up? Um, How, how far out is that event? We're recording this at the beginning part of February. Um, When is, when is going to be your uh, signals training weekend at the museum? April 21st and 22nd. Um, And kind of what, What is it that you're kind of uh, expecting participants to sort of know before they get to the event or what are they being asked to bring?
0: So they're they're welcome to bring their own field phone. That would be preferred. And although they don't have to have one, we'll issue them one if they don't. And so far, we're not setting any requirements. Um, it, It looks like we're going to be very successful. We have a participant coming over from Germany to help as an instructor, We've got roughly 15 to 20 people, which was kind of what we thought would be the upper limit, already signed up and and pretty enthusiastic. And so uh, I think ideally, you know, we are going for people that already have an interest because we're going to get fairly advanced. We're going to go in first and we're going to talk about the basic principles of electricity and, you know, voice recordings, you know, uh, audio tech, you know, going between not only just analog world war ii equipment but converting it to modern uh, digital equipment so that you can kind of uh, go between different formats depending on what you want for the event and you know then we're going to set up that network for for a battalion and of course we're going to review excuse me we're going to review uh german radio communications you know a lot of people don't understand that not every radio worked on the same frequency that there were specific network rules that you had to follow um you know things like that that a lot of people Existed during the war, but you don't really think about unless you've dive you know, dive through manuals and you've talked to people that have really run this stuff and and, and what you would experience.
1: Is it going to be just a one day thing or how long is the
0: event going to be? It starts as of right now. It starts at 3 p.m. on Friday. Uh, We're going to it. It formally ends at 4 4 p.m. the next day on Saturday, but we are going to be open. Through Sunday. So Fritz Aniv nee from Germany, who is a, a well-known communications reenactor in Germany, he's staying for that Sunday. So if you want to work with him, we'll, we'll do whatever you want if you stay after through Sunday. And that includes repairing equipment. So if someone has a, a switchboard that's very common for people have switchboards and only four of the, the 10 plugs work, or sometimes they work and sometimes they don't, or you want your field phone repaired, we'll do free repairs and things like that.
1: That's awesome. It sounds like people will have a really good opportunity to get some uh, really valuable, useful skills going to this.
0: Yeah, I hope so. And I also hope that it it's a way for reenactors who have similar interests in the hobby to kind of communicate directly. So I kind of shared earlier that I, it, sometimes it feels like people get a couple phones and, and some wire, but then they're kind of on their own because their unit doesn't support the impression. So, you know, without the drama or creating the potential issues of forming a new unit or trying to, you know, bring people away from their unit, they can just come interact with other people who have the same impression. And when they all go to the same event, they can kind of team up in advance and say, hey, let's meet up, let's build our network together. And then when they all arrive, do something that they wouldn't have been able to accomplish otherwise. That's
1: excellent. How did you um, do the research to kind of build up your own expertise over time, learning how to fix this equipment and um, learning kind of the doctrinal ways of how it was supposed to be set up and used?
0: So from the equipment side, I'm a little bit blessed that my career has been very good for the hobby. It's in welding. And I'm technically a welding engineer. And a big part of welding is, of course, electricity. Um, So uh, I I had been trained by my company in electrical engineering. And so I had that background. And then, you know, when I started getting into this, um, it's interesting, the online community for German signals and communications is very, very strong. You know, I don't know about other areas, but the biggest collectors that I'm aware of in the world, minus uh, of the top five, I would say three are very active on Facebook. And so it was kind of a period where there wasn't a a lot of activity. And right as I was getting into really researching this type of impression, these Facebook groups, kind of grew very quickly and connected people that really had a passion and were interested in helping other people um i think it's you know a lot of sometimes you have collectors that are have phenomenal collections and they kind of put it in in one place and don't do much with it uh, the general the, the people that are in signals and communication tend to be very active in helping younger people and want to see people successful and kind of pass the torch and i kind of fell into this someone they wanted to pass the torch to as they kind of came up in prominence and in the world of of collecting. And so uh, I have to give a lot of thanks to, uh, you know, several people throughout Europe and the U.S. that have helped me find, you know, sold us things at at, uh, below cost. So I, I got kind of into this Facebook group right as it was becoming prominent. And luckily, we've never been shut down, which is a miracle. And you know, it gave me access to some of the biggest collectors around the world. They saw me as someone coming out that they wanted to help. And, you know, I've been able to source a lot of unique equipment because of those relationships. That's cool. What What's the name of that Facebook group? World War II German Signals and Communication Equipment.
1: Okay, great. Uh, yeah, it's a miracle that that group hasn't has survived all of these various purges. I know other you and I were both an admin on a a very popular equipment group that got shut down. You know, it's been so difficult for me using Facebook to try to coordinate this kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. We've got, we've got 10,000 members. So we're one of the largest in the hobby now. I know there's been groups that have been much bigger, but for right now we're, we're, we're very strong. That's really cool.
1: What about how the field phones were used? Like the, uh, you know, kind of the protocol of using the radios and, and phones and setting it up? What kind of resources have you been able to find to learn about that aspect of it?
0: Sure. So I have the Rybart singles manual and it's, you know, I haven't actually wrote a manual on how to do this. that We're going to give out at training, but I'll, I'll paraphrase just because it's been some time. <clears throat> the phones were a little bit different because you were almost inter- almost always interacting with a switchboard. So it was, it was rare to have phone to phone, although that definitely could happen. But you would you would call into a switchboard and that or, or what they would call an exchange, just kind of the general area, not just the actual switchboard. And the exchange would have a code name. And so you would call and you would say calling this code name switchboard, and then they would respond saying, This is code name switchboard, and then you could start conversation and you would say, you know, calling on behalf to you know, you could tell them where you wanted to be routed. And if you were calling on behalf of someone, so if you were, for example, representing an officer, you would say this is, you know, Private Johnson calling on behalf of, of General Thompson or something like that. And, you know, for the radios, I, you know, I apologize, Chris, I'm, it, it, I'll am i be ready for, for training. Actually, that's going to be handled by our German speaking uh, staff, but uh, I don't have immediately how that the, the proper protocol.
1: I think that's great that you're able to uh, have a, a German person with a knowledge of this stuff come and uh, provide that instruction. I think that's going to be really valuable.
0: Oh, fully agreed. It's a whole other level. Um, I don't speak German. I can kind of make my way through some of the original manuals. I, I mean, I have a small vocabulary of maybe 100 words, but I can't look at a page and grasp instantly what it means. And, and he'll be able to do that. We can pick his brain. So we, we have a collection of manuals and references there that he can go through doing. He probably knows all this stuff off the top of his head anyways. He's very talented. That's
1: fantastic. Um, What about just the other, like, aspects of the event? Are you guys kind of mandating that people wear a specific uniform? Are um, Are you doing food? Like, you know, what are kind of the actual, like, logistics and, you know, amenities and your thought process about this event that you're running?
0: So, you know, that's a good question because, you know, as a reenactor, there's kind of a desire to tie it towards, for example, signals training, which which we will on some level. So every signal soldier in the in the Wehrmacht had to go through a specialized training. And then even among that, there were variations of the training. That's why the signal blitzes which was awarded on completion of the training, that's why they're all different colors based on the the branch of the military you're in, because they all had slightly different signals requirements. So You know, we've loved and I I have identified the manuals on where that training is, but I cannot find them. They're fairly rare. And even then, if I had one, it could be it's probably somewhat different to the other 10 or so different classes they offered. So, you know, it's we're not completely tying it to specifically the historical training. So I'd I'd love to do that, but I, I don't think it's feasible at this point. So. Probably what we're going to do is start with wolves. It won't be in the in the oatmeal's or, or the the white village, and because not everyone's going to have that, and I'm not sure. You know, it'd be, it's kind of something where we're going to have officers and we're going to have starting privates, and you know, we we we're going to kind of fudge history a little bit right there. But that gives us the opportunity to kind of offer this to all different types of reenactors.
1: I think that's totally reasonable. You know, sometimes these practical considerations, what the goal of the event is, have to trump, um, you know, precise, exact uh, replication of a specific historic instance that actually happened.
0: Yeah, agreed. So if I could, I don't know, daydream up a historical scenario it would be that, you know, the, the communications aspect of a local force needs to train very quickly a group of 20 people and they just kind of pull them at random from the existing force. And so the training's held locally and then they, you know, they go into the local signals group. So something, you know, that's kind of what I'm looking to recreate, which is, of course, probably a lot by assumption.
1: But I think it's plausible enough, you know, plausible enough for the participants to kind of feel like they're doing something that that has a a historical analog, even in a general way.
0: Agreed. Agreed.
1: Are you guys going to make food there or what are you going to do about? Yes. So we're going to feed.
0: We're going to have dinner Friday night, breakfast and lunch. So we have a kitchen as part of the museum we've got. It's a civilian coal stove, but it works wonderfully. And so we'll have no problem cooking in the next room. And we can even deliver food to the, for the field exercises. We have um, Essentroggers to, to deliver the food. So everything's taken care of from that aspect.
1: The field exercise is going to take place on the
0: grounds of the museum? Um, that I haven't decided. It, it depends on a few things. I want to try to find a little bit, you know, one of the, the things that's challenging in setting up a network is going across different types of terrain, whether it's muddy, whether it's uh, dry land or whether rivers and things like that. So we can do the museum, but then there's also, we're, we're kind of near the downtown of, of Conneaut. So I kind of want to find a place that's a little bit further away where we have kind of more an immersion type feel because everything we're going to be using, we have original field carts. I mean, we're, we're bringing in a lot of equipment and it's all real. Um, in fact, even the wires, period, which is very unique for the hobby. So I, I think I want to have an area where you can take a lot of pictures and you don't have to worry about the McDonald's in the background. Uh, actually, the McDonald's is isn't visible, but you get my point. And, sure. you know, if, if the weather gets bad or something like that, we can do it all inside. We can do it right by the museum where people don't have to get rain. But there's a uh, conneaut surrounded by public parks. So I've got a couple areas picked out. I want to make sure I can reserve it, but it's it won't be a problem. So ideally, we'll be... Um, in a beautiful kind of mixed terrain area, uh, worst case scenario will be at the museum.
1: I did want to ask you a little bit just kind of about um, sort of making a museum, which is a, a big undertaking of sorts. Um, I mean, I guess in theory, all you have to do is get a space and sort of call it a museum. But of course, there's there's a lot more, I think, subtlety to it than that I mean you have to work together with the locality they've got to sort of be on board with what you're trying to do and then of course there's kind of a bigger question that maybe would be something down the road of sort of like museum accreditation um, how, how have you found this whole process going through it
0: well you, you described it fairly accurately um, we when we came up with the idea we met with the Chamber of Commerce and the city of planner and then the city zoning. And so they gave us several ideas. Um, luckily, we had, because we had the collection already in Conneaut, we had a little bit of street credibility. I think that we might have had, if we weren't able to say kind of we're for real, um, and we're also in an area where they, they are depressed and they want to really support up and coming at, you know, uh, members of their, their community. I think that helped as well as, I don't know how a German museum would go over in another town, but in County, it went over very well. So we started with them. Um, You have to comply. Actually, we we found out later that the county actually has more requirements than the city. So we met the city requirements, thought we were done, found we kind of screwed up and forgot to contact the county funny story the zoning leader for the county was also a reenactor who I knew which was very very fortunate he fast-tracked um, a lot of the things we had to do we had to redo our plumbing we had to redo our ceiling so we had put paper to make it look like the top of a bunker if you go in there we have ceiling tiles we, we flipped them over but we found out that we had to meet fire safety ratings and paper um, paper mache to the top of the the ceiling was definitely a fire hazard, so we had to redo all our ceilings at the last minute. Um, we uh, we did apply for a grant with the county and got it, so the local people believe that we're, we're uh, legit, which is nice. Um, and there is an accreditation offered by, I believe, one organization in the U.S., and it's something where you just have to, um, my wife has actually done most of the research on becoming accredited, but if I understand it correctly, You've got to show what you're doing and then actually do it and have it connect to what you're trying to represent. And it's it seems simple, but if you're professional and you have a message and you have kind of a vision, you can become accredited. So that sounds kind of generic. Um, I'm not the expert, but that was my impression based on my, my conversation with her. So we, we do want to shoot for that. It's a three-year process, though, or a multi-year process. I took a Panther store, M42 Feldbluse,
1: and this is in an era when boiling your uniforms was actually the fad. And I boiled
0: this uniform into nothing. And it reduced itself into a, um, a woolen soup. That was a, a real nightmare. It's really different to do reenactment in France, Italy, or even England, because there are countries that suffered from the war. In Switzerland, people are quite open, and I never got any negative reaction. There was a time where I thought, oh, man, we're going to really be struggling with recruits this year. But I don't know if it's because people were sitting at home twiddling their thumbs because of COVID. But our recruitment actually has astronomically risen. The
1: Reenactor's Corner, bringing history to life. We are kind of coming up to the end of the episode here. Um, For people who want to get in touch with you how can they uh, find out more about your museum and
0: the upcoming events that you have there? Sure. So the easiest way is to go to our museum Facebook page. All you have to do is on Facebook search W W I I M a W, or you can put in world war II museum of the Atlantic wall and it'll pop right up. And you're welcome to to send us a message. If you've got any questions about communications equipment, if you're listening and you're reenactor and you think you want to get into this type of impression, uh, send me a line. We'll do whatever we can do to help you, include help you source the equipment at an affordable price.
1: That's uh, very generous and uh, very cool. I'm sure I actually will have some questions for you uh, later on. I'm kind of excited to pick your brain about some of my own signals equipment that uh, maybe isn't functional that maybe you could help me out with.
0: Uh, I'm, I'm developing. I know it can be done because I've done it, but never quite all in one place. A universal adapter so that someone can plug either a, walkie-talkie or their cell phone into a World War II German phone or original World War II German microphone and and handset. And so uh, as part of the class, because we're going to teach you how to do that, everybody gets this adapter. So they'll be able to to go home and make a call over their World War II phone uh, through their cell phone. And so I'll send you one of those adapters. Awesome. That sounds so cool. I would love it. No no problem. Thanks so much, Tom, for coming
1: on the episode. I've uh, learned a lot, and it's really been great talking to you. You too. Thank you, Chris. Awesome. Okay, so to uh, everybody out there, thanks for listening. Stay healthy, and I'll see you in the field. We love hearing your thoughts on the podcast, so why not sign up to the Reenactors Corner on Discord? You'll find a link in the show notes that accompany this episode. And while you're there, perhaps have a think about supporting us via Patreon. Your regular donations, no matter how big or small, really count and help keep us on the air. Thanks to Mike, a.k.a. Retro Man, for editing the podcast. And we hope that you'll join us here again soon for the next episode of The Reenactor's Corner.